0: Okay, so here are my thoughts. I'm a formalist, and I like to adhere to a very strict structure. And this show has always had an opening involving a content warning. But I've decided this time I'm not going to do one. It's been really, really difficult for me to come to this conclusion. But I said to myself, well, if Star Wars could start without the 20th Century Fox opening, then I could start my own show without a content warning. First of all, there are no curse words in this episode and so in its place i'm just going to do the 20th century fox opening i'm not going to see the c word
1: I was sitting at Landwege, and I was talking with this guy, and I put my—I had put my bag between my legs on the floor, uh, uh-huh. and then talking and talking, and we talked for an hour, and I looked at the, my clock, and I thought, oh my God, I have to go, and so I took my bag from the floor, I put it beside me, on the left side of me, and I turned back, and I kept talking to this man, and then once in a while, I looked over, and I thought, oh... This is a woman sitting with a, a lingua bag. Does she work at a lingua? I don't know her. It's kind of strange. She works at a lingua too. And then I look back at him and I thought, okay, I have to go now. And I oh, where's my bag? Oh, my God, my bag. Someone stole my bag. Did you see my bag? Did you see my bag? And she's like, huh? I said, is that your bag? <laughs> no. Can I look? Can I look? Oh, my God, this is my bag. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is my bag. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. This is my bag.
0: was a co-worker of mine, Monica. She shared that story with me a few months ago, and at first I just thought it was funny, which it is, but it stuck with me, so I asked her if I could record it. And after a while, it occurred to me why Monica's story kept coming back to me. It reminded me of a famous story that the philosopher John Perry told about himself to make a point that, as Galen Strawson told me,
2: that thinking of yourself as yourself is a special way of thinking of yourself.
0: Now, that that, that may sound like nonsense. Maybe you're saying to yourself, If I'm thinking of myself, of course I'm thinking of myself as myself. I am myself, which is grammatically incorrect. I am I, but I quibble. The point is, you're wrong. You don't always think of yourself as yourself. That's what Perry's story, as well as Monica's, illustrates.
2: His story is he's in a a supermarket with his supermarket trolley, and he notices there's a line of sugar on the floor, so he thinks, someone's got a broken bag of sugar in their trolley. And he wonders who it is, and he, keeps, he sort of decides he'll try and find out, and he tries to track them. And then after a bit, he, he's found he's done a circle, and he realizes that he himself is the one with the broken bag of sugar in his trolley. <laughs> so the story is useful, because before he finds out, he's clearly thinking about some particular person. But he, what he doesn't know yet is that person is himself.
0: Both John Perry and Monica's story seem on the face of things to be simple. John Perry and Monica had one belief and then it changed to another belief. But it's not that simple. And that has to do with the use of the word I in I am making a mess in place of somebody is making a mess. Or my bag in that's my bag in place of that's her bag. If someone else had said that's my bag It would have been wrong. And if Monica had said, that's Monica's bag, it would have been strange. It would have given her no reason to pick up her bag and take it, unless Monica spoke like Elmo or my daughter Ruby up until like three months ago. Metaphysical terms: Is there such a thing as a self, or is that just an empty term adrift on semiotic wings and going everywhere and has no real reference whatsoever?
2: Well, um, it's not empty. The trouble is, it's too full. I should think. There's too many, too many different ways in which it could be used. And in some of the ways you use it, the answers is going to be yes, and in other ways, it's going to be no. That's, yeah, I don't, that's the first thing to say.
1: Hmm.
3: Alone. Alone about a dreadful wood of conscious evil runs a lost mankind. Dreading to find its father,
4: lest it find the goodness it is
2: dreaded is not good. So maybe the next thing I might want to say is, or, or to ask, is whether there's a, a good use, given which the answer is yes.
4: Where is that law for which we broke our own? Where now that justice for which flesh resigned her hereditary right to passion, MIND HIS WILL TO ABSOLUTE POWER.
2: I think there might be a rather abstruse good use in which I think the answer is yes. GONE!
4: GONE! WHERE IS THAT LAW FOR WHICH WE
2: BROKE OUR OWN? Somewhere near the beginning of my book, which is called SELVES, I say that I'm going to answer yes, but I think that a lot of people will feel my answer amounts to no. Was the triumphant answer to be this? The self has been accused of terrible things in. like not existing, so I want to try and defend it and put some conditions on what a self would have to be like uh, in order to count as existing. And, uh, one of the conditions is that it's got to be a thing or an object in some fairly robust
4: sense. We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. And that makes it quite a lot
2: harder to defend. One of the easiest things to say is is you've got a self wherever you've got a subject of experience.
1: The garden is the only place there is. But you will not... I mean, I
2: think that's not a bad start. But then some people want to say no. There are subjects of experience over the place. But you don't get a self until you've got something that's self-aware. The miracle
0: is the only thing that happens. But to you, it will not be apparent until all events have been studied and nothing happens that you cannot explain.
2: There's no ruling on this. On one view, yes, you've got a self. That is, you've got a point of view, a locus of consciousness, a someone or a something who's looking out on the world as soon as you've got a conscious subject at all. On another view, you don't get a self until you get this richer thing, this thing that's aware of itself as being a self.
0: The story we started with, Monica's story. The important thing to take away from that is there are two Monicas, or at least for Monica, there are two Monicas. When Monica says, I moved my bag, the word I can refer to the Monica who is a person in the world. Monica was born in Canada. She lives in Germany. For all intents and purposes, the first person I refers to a third person. But when Monica says I, the word can also refer to her subjective self. And according to Professor Strawson, it only refers to the Monica having a conscious experience when she says it. I find it hard to express how weird this is. Working within the long tradition of analytical skepticism, especially that of David Hume, Professor Strawson tries to find the most coherent explanation for what a self is. And he answers that it's not a substance with certain properties, one of which is that it's occasionally conscious and occasionally not, like when when it's asleep or anesthetized, a self, he maintains, is merely a persistent instance of conscious experience. Added on top of that, some would require that that instance be aware of itself experiencing stuff. But aware or not, as a consequence of being a mere instance of conscious experience, a self is pretty short-lived. The self that Perceives the rich, complex flavor of a barley wine isn't the self that solves an algebraic problem or the self that remembers where it left its cell phone. I finished up
2: thinking that these selves might not be very long-lived. You know, you might <laughs> they might last as long as just a particular segment of continuous consciousness. That's unsatisfactory to most people, and doesn't give them a moral self in, in the way they want. That is, you know, a persisting thing and. So that was, the, that was the final upshot.
0: Professor Strassen calls persistence over time diachronic unity. And he thinks that the sense we have of subjective diachronic unity is an illusion. That's not true for us as human beings. So the third person Monica, the Monica who has a brain and was born in Canada and lives in Germany, she has diachronic unity. But the subjective Monica who experiences stuff, she's constantly appearing and disappearing. In his review of Professor Strawson's book, Selves, Thomas Nagel writes, One might think that this attack on diachronic unity conflicts with the fact that consciousness always involves time. There can be no experience that lasts no time at all, and the content of any experience is always what is going on in some interval of subjective time. In fact, the nature of the short temporal interval that is experientially present to consciousness at each moment, the specious present, as it is called, is one of the most puzzling things about the experience of time. A movie projector projects at a speed fast enough that individual images seem to become coherent moments. As a standard, we get 24 frames per second, though there have been some experiments with more frames. But slow down the frames, and you'll see smaller chunks of a moment. Are those not smaller moments that we simply aren't conscious of? And if you add more frames, aren't those even smaller moments that we aren't conscious of? What makes a moment a moment? In some way, our experiences last over time, right? Pulling away from the infinitesimally short to the whole span of your life, can we really rely on our public self, our self in the world, who is not the same thing as the subjective self, to carry over our memories, our concerns, our adorations, our loves, our hard-won wisdom, Our logical capacity, the things we know, those are things myself, my subjective self, me, the one writing a script and reading it out loud and trying to sound like I'm naturally speaking while doing it and and feeling pretty tired because I've barely slept, things myself possesses, or at least it feels that way to me.
2: I don't really want to insist on the metaphysics of the short-lived self. I could quite happily say, no, we do have persisting selves. And then, then what would interest me would be the difference between how people experience themselves with relation to time. And there, I just think there's a difference. Some people naturally think of themselves as persisting long-term and as having been there 10 years ago and thinking that they will be there in 10 years, and some just don't. So that's just an, an empirical, psychological difference between people. It's just a fact.
0: So this, this, this is what really startles me about Galen Strawson. I don't really know how to uh, make it seem less strange than it is. He says about himself that he doesn't experience himself as diachronic. That is, he doesn't experience himself as living from one moment to the next as a persistent being. He just experiences himself in the present at all times. And of happy happy-go-lucky.
2: Of course we're all human beings and we all live a complete life from... from birth to death but the point is that some of us don't when they think back 10 years they don't naturally think that's me they think i'm completely different now when other people do think that's me and that's just a very interesting difference between people
0: i think i do experience myself diachronically if he uses that word um more than you attest uh, yeah. uh, see, like
2: everyone, you're not sure. You don't quite believe me. <laughs> I,
0: don't, I don't disbelieve you. I really don't honestly disbelieve you. On the other hand, I do, I do find myself mysterious to myself in many ways. That is, I, I, I find my own motivations mysterious, and I find my own decisions in the past mysterious. What, what, what always strikes me is um, how fungible my will, if, if, if there is such a thing, seems to be at any given moment. Um, where, where at one moment I might be very resolute and and ready and willing to defend my position, and then at other times not, and and I I wonder where that other person is, and that person doesn't show up. Uh, so I maybe maybe I think of myself as as, as you know Whitman-esque, that is, I contain multitudes or something. Uh-huh. So now it's my turn to startle, right? I'm saying that I experience myself as more than one person, as a kind of plurality of people, and. I really mean that. I don't mean that I experience myself without any kind of persistence. I feel myself as one single substance, but but on the other hand, I feel that there are people manipulating and coddling and tearing and trying to gain primacy in me at any given moment. And it's not just different motivations for me. But then again, I can also be a singular self that looks down and sees all of this stuff happening. I'm, I'm another thing. I'm all of those things.
2: I'm interested about what you said about multitudes because that uh, there are all these dimensions of difference between people, and this looks like another one. There are people who feel somehow that there are lots of people. <laughs> uh, I've got some great quotations showing that, and people like me who don't ever feel anything like that. Um, I feel I might conflict of desires, but I'm, in no way do I naturally experience that as a conflict between two. Subjects or anything like that. I don't know if it's worth your while for me to read up one of these quotations. Please do. Please do. See, I've I've just clicked and I've got one from Paul Clay. He says, I quote myself from his uh, diaries, myself is a dramatic ensemble. Here a prophetic ancestor makes his appearance. Here a brutal hero shouts. Here an alcoholic bon vivant argues with a learned professor. Here a lyric muse, chronically love-struck, raises her eyes to heaven. Her papa steps forward, uttering pedantic protests. Here the indulgent uncle intercedes. Here the aunt babbles gossip. Here the maid giggles lasciviously. And I look upon it all with amazement, the sharpened pen in my hand. A pregnant mother wants to join the fun. Shush, I cry. You don't belong here. You are divisible. And she fades out. One other thing that's odd about that actually is that he at one point he describes himself as above it, looking down with amazement.
0: That's consciousness, right? There's that. There's that. That's
2: how it is for him. And he I mean Eric Erickson, he wrote this famous book called Identity in, in the I think in the sixties. He, he I'm quoting him, he says, various selves make up our composite self. There are constant and often shock-like transitions between these selves. It takes indeed a healthy personality for the I to be able to speak out of all these conditions in such a way that at any moment it can testify to a reasonably coherent self. And again, I'm really puzzled by that. Okay, so Mary Midgley, she's an interesting woman philosopher who was, she was at Oxford with Elizabeth Anscombe and mm. Iris Murdoch and Philip Foote, who are some of the three leading women philosophers of the 20th century. Anyway, she said, Dr. Jekyll was partly right. We are each not only one, but also many. Some of us have to hold a meeting every time we want to do something only slightly difficult in order to find the self who is capable of undertaking it. We spend a lot of time and ingenuity on developing ways of organizing the inner crowd, securing consent among it, and arranging for it to act as a whole. Literature shows that the condition is not rare, and then she goes on, others, of course, obviously do not feel like this at all, hear such descriptions with amazement, and are inclined to regard those who give them as dotty. And that's me, dotty. No idea what he's talking about.
0: I can't, I can't imagine that that's, it seems, because it's so familiar to me, what has been attested in each of those cases.
2: Yeah. It seems well, so familiar. To so this is, what's, this is what's so interesting, that how different we are. So that's one really striking dimension of human difference. And then the other one is the thing about whether you think it was you 10 years ago or five years ago or one year ago. And I think we all misunderstand each other a great deal. We think that other people are more like us than they really are in this way.
0: The idea of this show is to try and find paradoxes, right? Genuine conundra. Questions that are left unanswered, not because they seem intractable, but because they seem to have mutually exclusive right answers. And the next idea is to build up our comfort with that ambiguity. This shouldn't come as a surprise to you. I've said it before. And it's right there in the subtitle. Constellation of Uncertainty. But after 5 longish episodes, you may have caught on to my modus operandi. A lot of the questions I use come from academia. And they seem to be so big, these questions. And the people who get paid to think about this stuff, they use sort of recondite jargon. And it's just, normally you'd think, what the hell does this have to do with any person living their life? I do my best to show that this stuff is actually as urgent as it gets. It's the stuff that keeps you awake at night. It's the most dreadful concerns you have, the ones that maybe you've harbored all your life, the most precious and fragile of your hopes. Often my guests have learned to think in a different manner about these things, to organize their thoughts in a different way, to see connections and associations that aren't obvious. Those ways of thinking are are useful and good, but they require a certain mindset, a certain attitude, and a certain vocabulary. And all of that, the mindset, the attitude, the vocabulary, they sort of fog over the long, creaky footbridge between the academic way of looking at problems and the common way of doing it. What I try to do in this show is brush away that fog. And that's what I'm trying to do here. It's not easy being a self, but it's what we are. Or maybe it's better to say being a self is what we do. If it's true that we exist not only as vividly conscious selves, but as public selves, too, like the public Monica who was born in Canada, lives in Germany, talked to strangers in shops for excessively long periods. Well, do we have a character? And if our character is defined by our public selves, can we know our character? Paul Bloom, professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale, is an excellent writer of popular science. He's occasionally a bit slate-pitchy, which, if you know your internet memes, just means he makes counterintuitive or contrarian arguments like the writers at the online magazine Slate. For example, last year he caused a stir with an article in the Boston Review in which he claimed that he was against empathy as a motivator to kindness and compassion. And this shocked some people but it was more nuanced than most readers gave it credit for. Of course it was. He was basically arguing that empathy can be hazardous because it is an excessive feeling. The problem wasn't the M. It was the pathy. Too much feeling can be debilitating. It's distressing. It can cause depression and indecision. Empathy is only good much as it leads to a more detached form of love and kindness. It's hard to argue with that. So about two weeks ago, he published a piece in The Atlantic that made a similar argument, but turned in the other direction, toward the self. In an experiment published in 2000, Bloom writes, a psychologist, Thomas Gilevich, and his colleagues asked undergraduates to wear a piece of clothing that they found embarrassing a t-shirt with a picture of the singer-songwriter Barry Manilow on it. After putting on the shirt, the undergraduates had to spend some time in a room with other students and were later asked to guess how many of the other students noticed what they were wearing. The undergraduates tended to overestimate the proportion by a large margin and did the same when they were asked to wear a t-shirt with a positive image on it, like Bob Marley or Martin Luther King Jr. In study after study, experimental subjects thought that other people would notice them much more than they actually did. Bloom writes that Gilovich and his colleagues dubbed this the spotlight effect. We are naturally conscious of ourselves, what we are thinking, how we look, and what we are doing. As David Foster Wallace put it, there's no experience you've had that you are not the absolute center of. And so it's hard to block this inference that others share this focus. If I'm wearing a ridiculous t-shirt, I'm thinking about it, and so I assume you are too. According to Bloom, when we consider all of our failings and shortcomings, we think everyone else in the world is doing the same thing, But not everyone else notices when I prepare to teach an English lesson like 10 minutes before it starts, or when I sit and watch Mr. Rogers with my kids rather than play with them because I don't want to clean up afterwards, or when I misuse German at the supermarket, or repeat the same joke so often that it isn't funny anymore. And that counts for positive things too. Not everyone notices when I speak fluently and amusingly in German without a grammatical mistake, or when I patiently do a handicraft with both my kids and then deal with the cleanup when they're in bed, or when I make a really great podcast episode. As Bloom writes, because such contrasts are so salient in our minds, we think others are sensitive to them as well. We think they notice, but research finds that they don't, or at least not to the extent that we think they do. Professor Strassen calls this the narrativity problem. In his reckoning, you can't really know yourself. Your character inheres to your public self. It was probably largely determined by genetics, although you can adjust it slightly. But something that many people do, that he's very skeptical of, is think of themselves as the main characters in the stories that are their lives.
2: Being narrative, as I understand it, is not the same as being diachronic. That means just that when you think back five years, you naturally think, that's me. Hmm. And you could be like that without being someone who, in some sense, thinks of yourself and your life as as a narrative, as, as a developing story. It's very obscure, exactly, what people mean by it. It has, it has to mean that in some sense you live your life as as if... It, no, I don't want to say as if you were writing a story, because that makes it sound very inauthentic, as if you're, you've stepped back from it. And it isn't like that. It's, uh, it's actually it's quite mysterious to me what people mean. So all I do at, usually at this point when I talk about it is I quote other people and say, look... They think that's how we live. Obviously, if you're someone who's got a career plan, a very well-worked-out career plan, then in some sense you're living your life as a narrative. Other people, of course, are just happy-go-lucky. They just go from day to day um, in the way that, well, I mean, some people think that some spiritual thinkers recommend that way of life. Yeah,
0: I'd say that's a very prevalent recommendation amongst spiritual thinkers. Yeah, consider the lilies of the field. Absolutely,
2: yeah. Toil not, neither do they spin. Sufficient under the day is the evil thereof. Take no thought for the morrow.
0: <laughs> I find myself struggling with this all the time and could probably use a good helping of Galen Strawsonism. Well, I, I could think... use to not, not experience myself as a self because I, I'm like a donkey giving myself a carrot or a stick all the time and saying to myself, oh, you've never gotten to that point that you've always wanted to get to. Do you not Do you not experience that at all? And and uh, I mean, in, in that sense, it must be a kind of narrativism there.
2: Well, Maybe, and if that's right, then I would want to refer you to a couple of very wise people. So one is Mark Twain, who who said, and I quote, we do not deal much in fact when we are contemplating ourselves. And then there was this wonderful science writer called Lewis Thomas, uh, who used to write in the 60s and 70s, and he said, it is all very well to be aware of your awareness, even proud of it, but do not try to operate it. You are not up to the job. <laughs> so I think you just, yeah, you, you know, you, you want to try to, to be good and to do good, but um, I don't think one can sort of take out one's wrench and try and fix things in oneself. You just have to try to act well. Mm. Let everything else just settle out as it will. Everyone knows what Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. But well, I think one reply to that is that's not clear. <laughs> Um, the unexamined life might really be quite nice. And whether it is or not the over-examined life is going to be a disaster, I would think. think Don't don't overthink yourself. This would be the general advice.
0: Probably fantastic. I think it is fantastic (laughs) advice. I mean, I I do struggle with that quite a bit, and I am sometimes at a a loss as to, because here's the rub, perhaps it's my character. Uh. Yes,
2: (laughs) I was just going to say that. So you...
0: It's a crying shame, right? I mean, like, what are you supposed to do about your character uh, being a character that tends to reflect on itself too much?
2: I think that I think that's one good, there's definitely one good possible form of life there, but it has its very specific dangers.
0: I want to switch to another voice. You heard a bit from Father James Martin at the tail end of the last episode. You'll have to allow for a few assumptions, but I hope I've pulled you through enough of the coils and tendrils of metaphysics and epistemology over the last five episodes that you can accept that those assumptions are rational and decent. And I hope you'll notice, as I have, that the counterpoint of these two perspectives allows for some serendipity. I mentioned that Galen Strassen doesn't believe you can know yourself in any deep way and that he cites a Gerard Manley Hopkins
3: poem. um, Good good source. Nice nice Jesuit quote. Exactly.
0: Myself being my consciousness and feeling of myself, that taste of myself, of I and me above all and in all things, which is more distinctive than the taste of the ale or alum, more distinctive from the smell of walnuts, incommunicable by any means to other man. Nothing else in nature comes near to this unspeakable stress of pitch, distinctiveness and selving this self being of my own. And then he goes on, Strassen goes on to say that he finds that completely bewildering. He finds it very beautiful. And he takes uh, Hopkins at his word. But on the other hand, he doesn't himself in any time experience his personality the way others do as as an object in the world. And I I think there may be something to that. My intuition is that you only know yourself by knowing other things. That is, uh, you, you know yourself as you know God in some ways, that is, uh, by hints and intimations, you know it secondarily, the way scientists sometimes see things with, with devices that they can't, they can't know by their own sensory observations. Does that make sense to you?
3: It does. I mean, I, I do understand the Hopkins quote a little differently. Uh, you know, Hopkins also sees himself as, you know, a beloved creature of God. And so he sees himself the way God sees himself or he sees himself the way God sees Gerard Manley Hopkins. And, you know, he's speaking as someone who has had himself a deep experience of God's love. And so he is seeing himself as part of God's creation, you know, which is a different way of looking at self.
4: well so that is that now we must dismantle the tree putting the decorations back into their cardboard boxes
3: you know we have these experiences and everything is filtered through our uh you know our, our senses so things are in a in a sense in that way subjective because you know they depend on the subject
4: we have seen the actual vision and failed To do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility.
3: By the same token, if you have an experience of yourself as deeply loved um, by another person, or in this case, by God, you have another understanding of yourself. Once
4: again, we have sent him away. Begging, though, to remain his disobedient servant, the promising child who cannot keep his
3: word for long. In a lot of his poems, um, you know, one of his poems, to paraphrase, he says, what I, came for my, what I came to do is me, basically. That's a paraphrase. So my purpose in life is to be me, is to be myself. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of like that. It's, a, it's the vocation of being yourself. And, and for the believer, at least for the Christian, for me, uh, the only way to understand that is in relationship with God. But for the time being,
4: here we all are, back in the moderate Aristotelian city of Darning and the 815, where Euclid's geometry and Newton's mechanics would account for our experience, and the kitchen table exists, because I scrub it.
3: So, so it, it takes it out of the subjective realm and puts it into the relational realm.
4: The innocent children who whispered excitedly outside the locked door where they knew the presence to be grew up. When it opened.
3: And that's how you are understood in relationship to God.
4: Now, recollecting that moment, we can repress the joy, but the guilt remains conscious. Remembering the stable where, for once in our lives, everything became a you and nothing was in it.
0: I mean, I'm a a believing person, uh, and I have felt God's love in many ways, in the blessings he's given me, and and even in the troubles I've experienced. I think of it as my great gift that I'm doing with God. That is, I I see God giving me the chance to work with him, to work by attrition, if this makes sense. Even at times when it's not easy to see God in things, then I I try to, in the hopes that I will see God in things again, if that makes sense, and, and it comes to me. It eventually comes to me, and I I find peace again. I think maybe what what troubles me, and it troubles me about the the experience of being a self, is the permanence of it in those moments when when you experience bliss or joy. Things are easy. It's those moments when you don't experience bliss that it's difficult to maintain.
3: That it's difficult to be yourself? Is that what you're saying, in a sense?
0: It's difficult to see myself the way God sees me in those moments.
3: Well... That's an interesting I always like to turn it into a relationship, you know, if you have you said you have children, is that right? I
0: do, yeah.
3: Yeah. So if you see your child going through a difficult time or struggling or crying or even throwing a tantrum, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you still love your child. You're still in a relationship with the child. And so, you know, I always say to people, if if you can do that, you know, with all of your limitations, God, you know, is infinitely more compassionate and can accompany you, you know, even when you are at your, you know, so-called worst. Uh, and so I think part of it is, you know, what is your image of God? Is your image of God, someone who loves you only when you are good Is your, or is your image of God more like the loving parent who loves you no matter what you do. Right. I mean, who wants you to do a good thing and wants you to do the moral thing like any good parent would, but who loves you nonetheless, you know, so a lot of that may go, Less to your own self and more towards your image of God. Hmm. By the way, I found that Hopkins poem. Can I read it to you? Please do. Yeah. Uh, As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same deals out that being indoors. Each one dwells selves goes itself myself. It speaks and spells crying. What I do is me for that. I came. I say more. The just man justices keeping grace that keeps all his goings. Graces acts in God's eyes. What in God's eye he is Christ Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his to the father through the features of men's faces. So the idea is each mortal thing does one thing and the same myself. It speaks and spells crying. What I do is me for that. I came. So I, I like that in terms of, you know, our vocation is to be ourself, but it is under God's care and God's concern and God's love and God's compassion as it would be for a child, you know, you want your child to be himself or herself, right? But still you love them for who they are. So it's, it's a very relational understanding of, uh, of, of existence. You know, the question is, who am I, is also the question of, you know, who am I in God's eyes, right? Uh, I mean, there are these great questions in the Gospels that Jesus asks his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am?
0: Who do the people say that I am? Yeah, of course.
3: And, you know, they, the disciples, hem and haw, and they say, well, some say John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. And he says, who, right, who do you say that I am? And, you know, interestingly, um, you know, they need to say it in order to understand who he is and you know I read something recently that said Jesus may have needed to hear that you know this is who we believe you are Yeah, I, I don't think we can understand ourselves. I mean, this is you know, based, sort of basic philosophy, too, and more basic sociology. I don't, we, you're right. We cannot understand ourselves outside of relationship to one another. We're not monads. Um, and from a spiritual or a theological point of view, we cannot understand ourselves outside of our relationship with God. We are, you know, as someone said, we are a word that God speaks. You know, and Psalm 139, I don't normally usually quote this much scripture, but, uh, Oh God, you search me and you know me, you know. You you are acquainted with all of my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So there's a sense of God you know, knowing you very intimately. Uh, St. Augustine said, intimior intimo meo, you know me, you are nearer to me than I am to myself. So for the religious person, God is completely part of that idea of the self.
0: Regarding my, my breakup and, and about being a, a self, um, when, when you're a self, you, you kind of have to rebuild your, your understanding of yourself uh, once you've gone through a severe pain and loss uh, something. Uh, and it is a kind of suffering. It's not a death. And a it is
3: of, suffering. I'm no, dead. it is a kind of... Well, it's a death. I mean, it's a death of a relationship.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I've, I've gone through death and it feels very much... Yeah. Well, it's identical. A, there's a grieving that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 one has to i mean it's not i don't think i don't think it's fictional but one does have to retell the stories or 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 modify one's stories in order to understand one's place again in, in the world and um something that helps me and and maybe you can tell me what you say to this uh is i i believe in a kind of teleology that is i i believe things have their natural purpose i like maybe this is what we've been uh, hinting at in our entire conversation here is is that there is a kind of loss, there's a kind of end, a natural end for everything, and including ourselves, and some things reach their full potential and some things don't, and that, that seems to be part of God's creation when, when the, we can't deny is that um, it's kind of Job's uh, complaint, is why... Why the suffering? Why all this stuff that happens? Why why the multiplicity of creatures that die in order for a small number of them to live? These are kind of big questions. But um, one answer to that might be, in my opinion, all things have the potential to to reach their final end, and then those ends have a potential again thereafter. So uh, any seed, any atom has the potential to become to take the form of a, a seed for a plant and that seed has the potential to become a plant, but not all seeds become plants. And um yeah, not all not all marriages become, sad to say, uh become fifty year old marriages. Um they become something else. And um they leave sorry to cry a little bit here, but they leave right. the potential they had uh before, um that one that one dies and um then whatever is left behind takes on its new potential and, and be and has its own new end in itself. Um what do you say to that?
3: Well, first of all, I'm I'm sorry that's uh, that it's so painful for you. I mean, it sounds very difficult.
0: That's okay. I mean, it's it's normally not, it's just I'm I'm getting
3: into well, it at the moment. So Well, yeah, I mean, you might see that as a way of God kind of touching you right now a little bit. If these things I'm saying to you are appealing to you or or strike you, that may be one way of God speaking to you. Um I believe, you know, I believe in a teleology. I believe things have a purpose and I believe things have an end. I think that for human beings uh, you know, the end is God. It may have the end for animals too, for all I know. I mean, Pope Francis talked about that in his recent encyclical where paradise is a place where all creation, you know, reaches its fulfillment. Um, why things don't reach their fulfillment in quotes, you know, at least as we see it,
0: yeah.
3: uh, is beyond me. And that, that's the mystery of suffering and the mystery of, of evil. Uh, why does why do children suffer? You know, you, you we right now we're looking at pictures of Syrian refugees, you oh, know, I'm, washing I'm in, up on in, the shores.
0: I see I, there there are Syrian refugee children in my kids' kindergarten
3: here in yeah. Germany, actually. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there is there is moral evil, the the evil that uh, humanity you know causes against itself. There is natural evil. I mean, you know, there are hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and floods. And, you know, and then there's flat-out, you know, cruelty and suffering. You know, where do these things fit into God's plan? I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, anyone who tells you this is the answer to the mystery of suffering is, you know, full of baloney. And usually full of something worse, too. The question is, can we believe in a God who we don't fully understand? Can, believe, can we believe in a telos that we don't really see? And can we believe in a, a final purpose and a final end and a... Fulfillment that we don't, we're not really privy to, and the question is once again: it, it can we trust in the relationship? Because a child trusts in a relationship with the parent, even though they don't quite understand exactly what's going on. Now that's that analogy limps because a lot of people hear it and they say, "Oh, I'm not a child, and don't talk to me like I'm a child." But it's a it's a decent analogy to to put us in the perspective of a of a trusting child, you know, who looks up to his or her parent and you know has complete trust. Uh, even though things seem difficult at times. So I think the teleology really depends on the relationship. And the big question is, you know, can we believe in a God uh, that we don't understand? And can we believe in a telos that we can't see? Mm. And we can, can we believe in a vocation that we cannot fully plumb? I don't think we'll really understand it until we are, you know, until we have died and meet God face to face. I really don't. I think then we will understand... Uh, you know, St. Paul says, we'll see face to face. We will understand not in part, but in full. So that's how I see it. But I I mean, you know, I suffer. I have aches and pains, and friends die, and, you know, things fail, and uh, Jesus suffered. Thanks. Yep, yep. The other, The other insight in the, into the Christian point of view is that, you know, Jesus Christ is someone who understands suffering, who understands physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. He felt abandoned by God on the cross. So we also don't have you know a god that doesn't understand us hmm. uh and in terms of relationship god loved us so much that he came down and became one of us that's what the christian believes hmm. so that's so it's that kind of sort of reaching out so the answer to your question is uh you know can we believe in a telos that we don't see and that's where faith comes in
0: yeah hmm. you had mentioned earlier that that uh that maybe jesus needed to have people answer for him who do you say i am is that part of Jesus's human experience is, is uh, to be well, self? That that's is. a
3: great question. The, 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 the question of Jesus's self-identity and Jesus's self-consciousness. Now, a self-consciousness, we, we can't really get at. I mean, there are glimpses in the Gospels where he, for example, when he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So he clearly felt a sense at some point in his life of distance from the Father. His self-identity is very interesting to think about. For me, uh, the two poles are he always knew who he was. He always knew he was the son of God and could perform these miracles and uh, was the second person of the Trinity. Uh, or he only knew it at the resurrection, you know, when, he, when all that was revealed to him. Or a middle ground, which I like, is that he grew in his understanding of who he was. That's how I like to think of it. And I've written about that in this uh, book, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, that you know, I published last year. Mm that that he through reflection as we all do on what what he was experiencing what was happening in his life he came to understand who he was and frankly you know once he started performing the miracles which are you know probably like half the gospels i mean anybody that wants to get rid of the miracles that means you get rid of jesus he must have understood you know this something is something is happening you know this is this identity i have needs to be you know really uh sort of confronted but i think by the end he understands who he is. And then at the resurrection, as one theologian said, his ultimate identity bursts upon him in all clarity. Which I think is kind of beautiful. That is good. Wh- which is very much like us. I mean, and so in his humanity and in his coming to understand himself, he is also like us. So people say Jesus is like us in all things except sin, you know, we believe it in sin. And here's another way that he's like us. He is like us in his understanding of his self. Which kind of beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah, we, we grow and we deepen our, our understanding of ourselves as we grow, and as, and I believe as did he.
0: Father Martin just published a novel back in October called The Abbey, A Story of Discovery. You can buy it wherever you get books. Galen Strawson publishes regularly. Check out a recent article he published in the London Review of Books called Is R2D to a Person? I don't think he came up with the title himself. This is obviously our last episode of the year. We'll be on hiatus until spring, producing new episodes. Although I do have a little surprise coming in between. And we're going to have our first live show next year, which is really, really exciting. We'll give you more details as it approaches. And please don't forget, word of mouth is our lifeblood, so tell everyone you know about our show. You painted a message on the side of your town's water tower? I don't think I could pay for your bail, but I would write you a nice letter, like on really nice stationery. A Million Little Gods is produced by me, Aaron Gowan, with help from Chris Lewis, Todd Harrop, and Nick McDonald. Our theme song is by Nick's band Recycled. You can find us on Twitter... The handle is at AMLG podcast. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash amillionlittlegods. And our website is amillionlittlegods.com. Don't forget the uh. I wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. Still is Christmas. Christmas is a season. And Happy New Year.